Welcome back to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. My name's Elise Glink, and in addition to hosting this podcast, I'm a best-selling author, radio talk show host, financial expert, and CEO of Best Money Moves, a financial wellness technology company. You can find me at bestmoneymoves.com. Equifax is a leading credit reporting agency, and last April, as part of its ongoing effort to be helpful in this time of economic pain, the company launched an extensive coveting credit financial resource center. You can find it at Equifax.com. It's hard to believe that we're almost at the end of the year. 2020 has been one of those years that I think a lot of people are waiting to just look in the rearview mirror at. Financially, politically, emotionally, health-wise, it's been a really tough time for so many people. This podcast is part of that effort to help expand your access to some of the leading financial experts in the country and provide answers to some of your big credit questions. We discuss real-world solutions and share resources for people like you who are looking to protect their credit and manage their finances during the pandemic. In this episode, we'll be talking with Kendall Keeling, she's Core Exchange's lead for Equifax, and Mike Fratantoni, Chief Economist of the Mortgage Bankers Association, about his predictions for the mortgage industry as we move into 2021. First, let's turn to Kendall Keeling, Core Exchange's lead for Equifax, to talk about how credit card usage gets reported to the credit reporting agencies and how your usage of that credit card might ultimately affect your credit history. Hi, Kendall. Welcome back to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Thank you. It's great to talk to you again. So there are hundreds of millions of credit cards in the marketplace, and I think there's been some confusion over how information about how someone actually uses their credit card gets reported to a credit reporting bureau. How does this process work? Basically, the different lenders report their their credit card usage and the whole picture of that, um, usually monthly. Uh, That's the most common way. And depending on the size of the lender and how much data they have, they will likely break it up into kind of smaller files that they send in. And this is usually tied to their billing cycle. They do send in files and they will take the payments as well as interest that has been calculated, late payments and other things like this to come up with kind of a a snapshot uh, of your payment history for, for that month. And they'll send that over to the credit bureaus and then we'll update it onto the consumer file. All right, so there are lots of different billing cycles. So do credit reporting bureaus receive files from credit card companies every day? They can. Uh, So if you think about it, I mean, maybe when you've worked with with a lender before, they've said, you know, perhaps you could choose your billing cycle or, or you have a particular time that you want this billing cycle to occur. And basically what that does is they just assign that to you and then it it aligns, you know, when you need to make your payment. So at the end of that cycle, they will calculate all of the things like, you know, what is your status? Have you paid within your period that you were supposed to? Uh, Are there any fees that need to be assessed, interest that needs to be assessed, or have you paid the full balance? All of that information goes into this snapshot. And so when it comes over, Again, it can be a lot of data. They try to spread the billing cycles out. Now, smaller lenders may have five billing cycles, the first, the fifth, the 10th, the 15th, the 20th, et cetera. Uh, larger you know, institutions may send something every day and they may have a billing cycle every single day. 
So what the bureaus may be getting is actually just a sliver of their consumer uh, portfolio each day when they get the file. But it would be all the information on that consumer, if that makes sense. It does. So does all the information from every credit card company get reported to each of the three main credit reporting bureaus all the time or or not? Because I think there's some confusion over what gets reported and to whom. Yes. So that is a another situation where it kind of depends. Uh, credit card companies are not uh, legally obligated to report your payment history. It's, it's purely something that they make as a business decision if they want to do that. So they could report to no credit reporting agencies. They could report to all three or they could report to one or two. So it's completely up to the lender how they report. Um, as bureaus, we try to align information as much as possible so that if they are reporting to two or three of us, you know, it's going to be hopefully the same information as much as possible. And we try to align it so that there's, you know, it's accurate, but there is no obligation for them to, to do so. Uh, how does opening up a new credit card account affect someone's credit history? So what it would do, when we say credit history, I think of the consumer file, it would appear uh, once the credit card company originates the loan and, and builds a, an account in their servicing system, uh, they would then report it uh, after the first billing cycle, and it would show up at some point on a consumer's credit file. And there's a lot of things that can affect uh, when it shows up, how it shows up. So once it shows up into the file, you would see your new credit card account, right? Um, and you would hopefully see that it, it, the limit looks right and the other things that, that are on there that you are able to see uh, in your version of the file. Now, your credit history is one thing. Your scores are another. So I'm assuming when people talk about how does it look and how does it affect, they, what they really mean is, you know, how can that affect your credit scores? It can have a couple of different effects. One of the things that um, is usually included is your new activity, right? So your inquiry, um, if there's a hard inquiry, that would be on there. Uh, if you have the new loan, your new credit card, that would be on there and, and they would see that there's new activity. Also, dependent upon what your limit and your what you've already spent on it, that would be your credit utilization. That could affect your risk scores as well. So there's a lot of things happening, you know, in a short period of time that can actually kind of uh, be a little bit of a, a cumulative effect on a credit score. Um, once you start to pay and you pay on time, uh, you would see things uh, probably return to normal, but you could see adjustments or impacts to a credit score uh, right after opening a new account. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, you want to make sure that you're always paying your at least your minimum monthly due on time so that you continue to show good credit behavior, right? That's correct. So there are a couple of, of really fundamental things, and I know we've talked about this before, and we'll certainly talk about it again. When you go to, to apply for a credit card or any other loan, you know, not borrow more than you can afford to pay back. The other important piece is that you pay on time because you know, no matter how you slice it and how many points are assigned from the different scores and, and when you pay, right, during the month and how it gets reported in, the important thing is, is that you, are, you show responsible behavior, right? And those two things uh, really contributed to responsible behavior. So that's, that's what another lender would be looking at 
um, when they're when they're looking at your scores and your your histories to see is this person responsible with with their credit and and the money that they've been loaned or the the collateral that they've been loaned and are they paying it back on time? Don't you know immediately run whatever available credit you have all the way to the limit um, and keep it there and that you pay on time. So it's important to make sure that that's going to be your priorities. Kendall Keeling is Core Exchange's lead for Equifax. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. When it comes to mortgages, this year has been unlike any other. And yet 2021 could be an even bigger year for people buying houses, refinancing their homes, and yes, getting a mortgage. Mike Fratantoni is chief economist of the Mortgage Bankers Association. He joins us now to talk about 2021. Mike, welcome to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's start with the obvious. Just how many times have mortgage interest rates hit an all-time low this year? So the pandemic began in March in the United States, and really interest rates have been on a trend downward since then. And regardless of whether you look at the Freddie Mac rate survey or our weekly application survey where we track rates, it has just been one record set after a next and really just unheard of lows, you know, less than 3% for a 30-year fixed mortgage rate. So let's back up a little bit and, and help our listeners understand exactly why interest rates are down this much. I, you know, I remember... I think back in 1993, with maybe one or two brief exceptions, mortgage interest rates have been below 6%, below 5% even. Help me understand why that's happened. Well, that's a good question. It goes back to your macro 101 class in college, if you remember that. So the, the drivers of interest rates are the pace of economic growth, And what we've seen over the past 10 to 20 years is that that pace of growth has slowed, both in the U.S. and abroad. Some of that comes from slower growth in population, so there are fewer workers to be had. And some of that comes from slower productivity growth. Uh, So that's the real side of the equation. Then you've also had central banks who have been completely successful in conquering inflation. So if you remember back to the 70s and 80s, we had double-digit inflation, and into the 90s, there was always a fear that inflation would take hold again. Investors needed to be compensated for that fear. Really, from 2000 on, inflation really hasn't budged much above the Fed's target of 2%. And when you look at long-term interest rates in particular, that's really important in keeping those rates low. Now you look at this year, you have a pandemic. You had the worst single quarter drop in GDP in U.S. history in the second quarter. And although we have rebounded to some extent, uh, we still are climbing out of a pretty deep hole. How much does the Federal Reserve Bank's pledge to keep short-term interest rates low affect what we pay for mortgages? That is a really good question, and oftentimes people will hear an announcement that the Fed has raised or lower rates and and would expect that's immediately going to show up in a mortgage rate, but it doesn't. To exactly your point, it's more complicated than that because a longer-term rate like a 30-year mortgage or a 10-year Treasury yield really is the market's best guess of 
where short-term rates are going to be over that next 10 or 30 year period. So today, at a time when the Fed has essentially promised to keep short-term rates low through 2022, that's one data point that investors are looking at. But then they also are estimating what's going to happen after that 2022 point when they begin to raise short-term rates. So you really think about that 10-year rate today is, is the market's best guess about where short-term rates are going to be over the next 10 years. And right now, the Fed's putting their thumb on the scale, absolutely keeping short-term rates as low as they can be over the next couple of years. But after that, a little more uncertainty. Um, when you look at the number of people who have refinanced, I, the question that I got uh, earlier was from somebody who has had a 6% mortgage for the last 12 years and is now wondering if they should refinance. I'm wondering, I, I, that just blows my mind. I'm sitting here for a moment just thinking again about how insane that question is. But there are so many people out there who really haven't refinanced. So in your best estimate, how many people could take advantage of these rates? And what do you expect will happen over the next year in terms of refinancing? Rough uh, estimate, there are about 50 million people in the country with a mortgage. If you look at folks with a mortgage that are credit qualified or employed and could probably save three quarters of a percentage point by refinancing, you're talking about 18 million people today. Now, that would be a refinance wave even bigger than we've seen this year. Uh, which has uh, seen, uh, we think, uh, by the end of the year, probably about 10 million people refinancing. And so why don't people refinance? To your, to your questioner of, you know, they had 12 years where they had an incentive to refinance and didn't. Why didn't they before now? Sometimes it's, well, maybe they weren't in the financial spot to do so, didn't have steady employment, uh, had credit issues that would prevent them from qualifying. They might be at a place where the balance on their mortgage has gotten low enough that it may not be worth the hassle, right? They may be at a place where they're ready to pay the mortgage off rather than set themselves up for another long mortgage term. Or it could be that they're planning to move in the next couple of years. So I think all those things come into play. The other thing that uh, folks like me, sort of analysts, look at when you're when you're modeling refinance behavior is something called burnout. So again, to your questioner, if over the past 12 years they have passed up multiple opportunities to refinance, even as good as the opportunity is today, the, the model sort of suggests that they're less likely to, to pull the trigger today. There's something that just has them not interested in refinancing. Now, sometimes that can be overcome in the industry we talk about a media effect, where particularly when you do things like set a new record low or you know break below 3% for the first time ever, that'll bring out people interested in refinancing who have passed up multiple opportunities before. And I think in 2020, we have definitely seen that. It's interesting because I think that there's a lot of truth to the idea that people get burned out trying to redo things. I, I know I'm burned out from renovating and that was 20 years ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> and my bathroom could use it, but I got to tell you, I'm still remembering how painful that was 20 something years ago. But, you know, when you think about how tight things are for a lot of people, you know, you've got 10 or 12 million people who are still out of jobs that they had in February, for example. Um, to your point, it's, it is possible that a lot of those people just simply can't refinance. 
But I wonder, because one of the things that drives mortgage behavior as well is the idea that there's something out there that you want or want to move to or want to do. And if you've got uh, such ultra low interest rates, some of the behavior that we've seen over the last 10, 12 years is that people were like, hey, it's now so cheap to stay in my house. Buying another house is going to be so much more expensive. And then I'm giving up my existing house. I have to go through that hassle. I'm just not going to sell. What do you think about that uh, balance of having properties available for sale, the fact that we're at historic lows in terms of inventory, that home builders really aren't building enough homes to satisfy the demand, both pent up and future, and its effect on people refinancing and ultimately selling and moving? So a couple of thoughts there. When I think about what's driving the home purchase market, uh, really think about a couple of different factors. You know, one, the macroeconomic situation where the unemployment rate is. Uh, we talked about mortgage rates. But really on the purchase side, so much is being driven by demographics. And it is difficult to predict uh, mortgage rates. It is really pretty easy to predict demographic trends. You know, I, I, my, one of my favorite jokes is that I can tell you with near certainty that a 29-year-old this year is going to be 30 next year. And you can see by the bulge in the population right now that we have this millennial cohort, the, the biggest single age of which they're, they're you know, 28 and 29, there's 4.7 million of them. So that is the single largest age cohort in the population. And we know historically that peak first-time homebuyer age is, is 31 or 32. So high degree of certainty that over the next couple of years, we're just going to have a tremendous amount of housing demand really led by this very large group of millennial first-time homebuyers. That's the demand side of the equation. We know it's there, very confident that it's going to remain there at least the next four or five years. Now, the supply side, as you've indicated, has been much more challenging. And I think you know, going into the Great Recession, as a country, we probably built too many homes, and we had this overhang of inventory, we had this huge drop in home prices, we had underwater homeowners, and over the next decade, we probably built too few homes. As a result of, you know, some of that transformation of the home building industry, when this demand started to arrive, the supply really couldn't catch up. You know, builders would talk about a shortage of developable lots, a shortage of skilled labor. And so over the last couple of years, we've just had this persistent lack of inventory in the market uh, and home prices as a result. If you have growing demand and constrained supply, home prices growing well in excess of income, affordability becoming a problem almost everywhere across the country. Other than Chicago, <laughs> but carry on. Okay. <laughs> Although it's interesting, even in some places like Connecticut, which have been having challenges until recently, now are bouncing back, right? I mean, some of it's just, wait, your time too shall come. But then there's sort of that interesting side effect. If you have this lack of inventory, it becomes a bit of a logjam where someone, uh, to your point, who really should have moved a couple of years ago, given what's happening with their family, given what they're looking for, couldn't find a place to buy, and they're still in their entry-level home, which would be a wonderful purchase opportunity for a first-time buyer, and things are just kind of locked in place. But I think really what needs to happen is faster pace of building, sort of release the log jam, and get some more motion across this 
housing market. I want to just go back to something you said about millennials. More than half of all millennials are now living with their parents again. And, you know, COVID has certainly changed the paradigm. And now that there's a vaccine announced, we all expect some things will go back to normal. But millennials will have to deal with their student loans. They've got more of it than any other generation in history. They're going to have to deal with their credit card debt, um, any other debts that they let slide during the pandemic. Do you think there's going to be some long-term repercussions for this group because of what's happened and where they are? So I think first on the student loan issue, that's something that we've obviously spent a lot of time looking at. The real good research here has shown that Yes, it can delay home buying, but it really doesn't prevent home buying. And so the the mortgage industry certainly needs to be aware of the impact of student debt. And I think the industry is doing a better job of that. So for things like federal student loans that have income-based repayment, in the credit report, and I know uh, we are speaking uh, to a credit-savvy audience here, that actual payment may be much less than you might expect given the balance on the loan. But to the last point of, okay, they're, they're living at home. Is that long-term a negative or a positive? I think you got to talk to their parents, uh, see how they feel about that. <laughs> My kids are 19 and 21 now. Ask me again in a few years how I feel about that question. Are you at all concerned that renters and, and the concept of renting are, are becoming more popular? You know, again, I think it's challenging with the millennial group being just such a large generation that, you know, sort of every uh, move that they're they're making is leaving an imprint on the country to some extent. And so at some point they have kids want suburban schools. They started moving out and now you have a pandemic on top of that. No doubt it is happening, whether it's happening really at a different rate or whether it's just that the group is so large and it's it's a bit hard to say, but I, I I definitely think we are now seeing a trend away from sort of downtown apartment living back into into suburbs. I I do think the pandemic is sort of one of a number of factors that might be contributing to that. But but I think we we are on the other side of that now, where you know five six years ago it was all about how do you sort of reimagine a world where people want to live downtown and experience urban amenities all the time to, well, second kid uh, in a one-bedroom apartment doesn't work. (laughs) Not when you have to have a home office. That's right. That's right. They they need more space and a yard at some point. So Right. No, there's a good point. And of course, uh, millennials are big on buying bigger houses for their dogs, so they're not going to have fewer pets as they go forward. Looking at the forbearance numbers, they were pretty high when things started out, no-fault forbearance. Um, But the numbers seem to be coming down quite smartly. And so, you know, as we move forward towards the end of the initial period of forbearance, uh, give me a sense of what you think is going to happen. And if there are this mythical million people out there that probably should be in forbearance but never took advantage of it. Both the the GSEs and the government agencies over the past couple of years have developed forbearance plans to really respond to natural disasters. You think about the hurricanes and the flooding and the wildfires out west. So from a standing start in March, uh, by the time we got to June, 8.5% of all mortgages in the country were in forbearance. 
It's an impressive number, I have to say. It's almost 5 million households that were given this relief. And part of it was that the process was made very, very, very smooth. So the homeowner just needs to say, I have a hardship related to the pandemic. Now, the easy part was getting into forbearance. Uh, there was worries that the more challenging part was what do you do at the end of that forbearance period? And there was always the hope that um, a deferral plan might be the, the most commonly used approach to exit. And that's where the foreborn amount is moved to the end of the mortgage. So the homeowner doesn't have to pay until they sell the home or refinance. And we're seeing at least thus far that a lot of success in terms of moving many borrowers out of forbearance into those deferral plans. They pick up their prior payment. We've also had a lot of uh, homeowners who, even though they were in forbearance and probably did so because they were concerned about their, their job situation, they kept paying. I mean, it's been phenomenal. Um, about 16% of loans in forbearance uh, are current, which means they made their most recent payment. And uh, we've seen others come out and, and pay off the foreborn amount immediately in a lump sum, even though they weren't required to, uh, they just, they just cl cleared the deck. So the challenge is what we still have about 2.8 million people, uh, 2.8 million homeowners in forbearance. So under the CARES Act forbearance, they could get six months of relief. And then as long as they contacted their servicer, they can get another six months of relief. So we're talking about you know spring of next year, sort of March, April, when that final six month uh, expires. And you know that these households are the ones that have probably had a rougher time than the ones who have already exited. Uh, and so they're probably gonna need a modification, you know, so a lower payment than they had before. And servicers are working to, to get homeowners into those today, but I think that share is gonna increase as we move into 2021. The challenge with that is you'll remember from the great financial crisis, all the, the stories of you know paper going back and forth between the servicer and the homeowner trying to ascertain really what their income is and what they can afford. That's a, it's a frustrating process. It's more necessary if it's a modification as opposed to a deferral because you need to know what the borrower's income is in order to judge how much they can afford going forward. So feels like the deferral might be an easier, smoother out for everybody. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, it just it all depends on the borrower's job situation. Then the, the, the last part of your question, you know, folks that are not in forbearance but delinquent, hard to get a, a good estimate on that. Uh, you know, Black Knight has an estimate of about 400,000. And these were folks that were behind on their mortgage before the pandemic. Were they unable to catch up because of the pandemic? That, that sounds reasonable, but for whatever reason, they've not reached out and asked for assistance. And so the industry consumer groups, uh, you know, with the, bl the blessing of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau are starting a public awareness campaign so that people know that you know, if they're behind, there is help out there, but they do need to ask. <laughs> They do need to contact their servicer and say, look, I've been looking for work, I you know, can't find it, this is all, you know, my, my employer shut down because of the pandemic. I mean, the, these are all things that people are, are ready and expecting people to ask, but a, a servicer can't make that decision for the borrower, the borrower needs to contact the servicer. I know that you feel, just from everything you've said, that you feel pretty optimistic that the mortgage industry will continue to grow next year. Um, how much bigger do you think the market will be? And will it be your best year ever next year? We are anticipating that it's going to be 
the best purchase market the country has ever seen. So, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a mortgage guy. So from a, a mortgage uh, origination perspective, 1.54 trillion in purchase mortgages. So we estimate that's going to be about 5.1 million purchase mortgages next year. We already saw in the most recent home sales data, you know, we're at the fastest pace of existing home sales since 2006. Uh, we think we're just going just to keep growing. Mike Fratantoni is the chief economist of the Mortgage Bankers Association. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Well, that does it for this week's Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Please visit the Equifax COVID and Credit Financial Resource Center at Equifax.com to check out our other podcast episodes and find hundreds of articles of information, all of which are designed to help you make smarter decisions with your money. We'll be back soon with another Equifax Credit Talks podcast. I'm Elise Glake. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.